Turn to uh, Genesis 19. So it's, it's, uh, it's good to be with you. It's Palm Sunday. So this is the Sunday where we remember that Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey and the crowds were, were, were yelling for him and, um, and chanting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Um, and it was this just, just momentous time. And Jesus had, right before that, the scripture says that Jesus had set his face toward Jerusalem and uh, he was determined to go fulfill his mission. Um, it's just, this is like one of the, this is the ultimate week from this Sunday to next of celebration in the life of the believer. And so I thought it'd be fitting this morning to preach on Sodom and Gomorrah. So turn to Genesis 19. <laughs> I was driving in this morning. I was like, I was like, uh, so I passed a Catholic church and, uh, and I was thinking about most awkward church services I've ever been in. One of them was in, uh, was in Africa where my daughter and where some of y'all know Greg and Kilby, my daughter and son-in-law. I was over there, not with them. I was, but I went to this church. I think it was an Anglican church. And uh, they were doing the Lord's Supper because we're doing the Lord's Supper this morning um, or communion if you didn't grow up in a rural country. Um, I think you're supposed to say communion. Uh, it's Lord's Supper, communion, how, whatever. Um, and they were doing it at that church, and they had, it was real ornamental. And a lady that was the, like the priest lady, she had like these medallions around her neck, and she was, she was uh, very um, official. They had this, and it was a great service, and they were great brothers and sisters. They had this long altar on either side. And when people were taking the Lord's Supper, they'd come down there, they would kneel at the altar. And they would hold their hand like this, and then the lady would come and give them this as a big wafer. It makes us Baptists look ridiculous for our little bitty crackers, but it's a big old wafer, you know. Put a wafer in everybody's hand and pray and do the cross, you know, the sign, and then they would eat and take the thing and go back. And so I go sit down, I go up there and kneel down, and when she got to my hands, or when she got to me, instead of putting the wafer in my hand, she smacked my hands. And I thought, all right, we'll just ride this out, you know, let's see. So she, she pointed for me to put my hands down, so I just put them down, and then she, she smacked me in the chin with her knuckle and the wafer and said, open. And, I, and you ever get in all those situations where afterwards you're like, why did I cooperate with that, you know? Why did I do? So I just went. <laughs> and she put the wafer in my mouth and then did the sign of the cross and I just kind of went back to my seat confused and that's the end of that story like that's all I don't even know I was the only person that got smacked and spoon fed you know um, so that was awkward church service the other most awkward church service I've ever been to was uh, it was uh, they, they, it was uh, they had snakes and they handled snakes and that was awesome man I was, I was 12 years old and my daddy was like hey there's a traveling tent revival they're handling snakes y'all want to go watch and I was like yes I do and, uh, and, and there were about 30 people in the tent revival and about 250 Haywood County hillbillies there as spectators outside everybody was safe distance everybody concealed carry holders you know like we don't bring no snakes near me and um but yeah so the, I was thinking man it's it's the the week of celebration kicking off and looking at Sodom and Gomorrah it's the darkest story this is the darkest story in the whole Bible to me to me personally I think as a dad because in the middle of the story you got this guy Lot offering his daughters basically as prostitutes to this group of homosexual men it's it's you I don't think you could twist it more 
into a darker place. And the older that I get, the less I'm entertained by dark things. You know, as, as kids, we like to watch horror movies or thrillers. And, man, the older I get, the less I want to be entertained by that stuff. Um, just have no desire. And I like, uh, I like true crime stories and podcasts and things like that. I'm reading a book right now about these two brothers. The book was written in 1927 about these two brothers that were kidnapped by the Comanche uh, in 1870s, something like that, and they lived with them for like seven years, and just dark, dark, dark culture that of, of sacrifice and, and cannibalism. And, and it's hard to get through something like that as a believer because it just it's heavy and it's dark and um, I was recently I like to listen to true crime podcasts I don't know if any of y'all do that but you got to kind of you got to find the ones that are not quite as some of them tend to focus heavy on the dark side of of uh, of crime and and so this is a dark story but it's fitting and I think you'll see this at the end of the story and pointing us to what we're going to celebrate next Sunday and in a, and y'all, those of you that have, you know, it's the fifth or sixth time I think that I've had the opportunity to come and share here, and y'all know me enough now to know my brain kind of works different, and um, and I it's just kind of where the the path I feel like the Lord's taken us on, and so we're going to look at the story of Sodom and Gomorrah and Lot and the rescue of his family, and um, and then we're going to let that point us to the cross of Christ. So uh, Genesis 19, we'll just kind of work our way through. We won't cover near the whole chapter, but. Um, we'll start in verse 1. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth and said, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. Then they said, No, we will spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly, so they turned aside to him and entered his house. And he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. So um, in the story... Um, we we picked this story up this morning in the middle of the story. And if you're not a Christian or, uh, or if you're new to the faith, you don't have a lot of knowledge of the Bible yet, what leads us up to this point, this guy Lot, he and his uncle, a guy named Abraham, had been called by God to go and wander in this part of the world. They'd come out of the, the Mesopotamian region. Uh, it was a real pagan culture, a lot of human sacrifice. So they came from a place where humans were sacrificed as part of worship to this goddess called Nana. And we found a lot of, we modern humans have found a lot of archaeological evidence for the human sacrifice that went on there. So that's what Lot had grown up in. He comes out of that. Um, so he's got already a, a really twisted background. But God redeems him and gives him salvation. We know that because he's referred to as righteous in the New Testament. And the only way that you can be made righteous is for Jesus to apply his righteousness to you. You can't earn that. So Lot, being called righteous by the word of God, tells us that God had graciously saved him. But he had a lot of really warped background stuff. Some of you might deal with that. You, you, you're a believer, you're walking with God, but you still find yourself um, struggling with things that happened before you knew the Lord. And that was Lot. And so um, Abraham was following God's command to wander in the wilderness, as it were, and to raise up an army and a nation of people that God had a future promise for, that he was one day going to give them a land of promise called Canaan. Lot wanted to settle down and put roots down in what would symbolically be the world. And so when we come into the story in Genesis 19, Lot is living in a place called Sodom. And we know that the city of Sodom was very pagan. 
It was very unrighteous. It was horrible the things they did there. In fact, the previous chapter, Abraham had prayed to God and asked him to deliver the nation or the city of Sodom from judgment. And God said, no, I'm not going to do it. I'm going to destroy him. And Abraham is basically like, God, if there's anybody righteous left in that city, would you spare the city for the sake of the righteous? And ultimately, God says, there's nobody righteous. The only person there that's righteous is Lot. And he's only righteous because I've given him salvation. I'll get him out of the city. Then I'm going to annihilate the city. We'll talk more in a few minutes about judgment and wrath of God. How do we reconcile justice and wrath and judgment with the idea that God is loving? Because he's going to level this city. So um, Lot has moved into the city that Abraham has prayed for. And Abraham has prayed that God would delay the judgment on the city, but Lot is dwelling in the city. I want to give you a, a couple thoughts that I think are applicable to where we are as a society because there's an increasing pressure on you as a Christian to capitulate to the world's ideology on things like sexuality, religion, um, that we need to reject the Judeo-Christian ethic for sex or for marriage or for gender, there's, there's this constant pressure that's being applied, and particularly for you parents, I would say that it's our responsibility with our children to teach them God's view and plan and design for sex and sexuality, because there's this constantly applied pressure. And the way applied pressure works is, if you have pressure applied long enough, eventually you'll give way to that pressure. It's kind of like, uh, I used to I used to do work, uh, do some horse, some training, and when you're teaching a horse, you know when you when you rein a horse, if even if you've never been around a horse, you know you you apply rein pressure to that horse's neck by laying the reins across that neck, and as gentle as that pressure is, a well-trained horse, as soon as the leather touches the neck, that horse will go away from that pressure, but when you first start training that horse, it, you lay that rein against its neck, and it's like. Maybe doesn't even feel it, doesn't even acknowledge it. And so what's happening in our society is there's this applied pressure that has begun to increase. And now Christians are capitulating, capitulating to the social and societal pressure. But, but that'll never work. As we'll see in the story, Lot has capitulated, but nobody takes Lot serious. As a Christian, if you want to be taken serious and if you want your witness to be something that God uses in the world, then you have to live with conviction. We have to live with the guidance of Scripture under the authority of Scripture. Lot has walked away from that. And so now Lot's living in a city where he has allowed the ethic of the city to shape his worldview and his view of things like sexuality, marriage, family, God, sin. He's, he's allowed the world to read on it. So what, what we see at this point in the story is the culmination of a progression in Lot's life that I want to explain to you. If we go back five or six chapters, in fact, if we go back to Genesis 13, the first time we see the mention of Sodom, it's when Lot looks towards Sodom. He's not living there. He's living in the wilderness with his uncle Abraham, but he looks towards Sodom. And the idea of looking towards Sodom is this biblical idea that he looks with longing. It's like he looks and there's something there that's drawing him. He's being drawn to this place. And we could speculate what that is. It's city life. He's living, he's living out in the wilderness um, in a tent and there's city life. And we, we can assume that Sodom was a thriving, booming economy. There was a lot that the city offered him. 
Um, and he, so he's drawn to the city. He wants to go to the city. And so he looks with longing towards Sodom. Maybe it was the excitement of the lascivious behavior. I don't know. Maybe it was something as simple as that's a more stable place to live. But he looks towards Sodom. And then, and then a few verses later, he pitches his tent towards Sodom. So he begins to act on that desire, and he starts to move. And so what we're seeing is, the big, if you can imagine a slope, we see him start down this slope of compromise. And the slope of compromise is a really slippery slope. And so when, when we don't live with conviction as Christians, and we begin to go down the slope of compromise, usually what happens is it accelerates. And we eventually abandon God's plan for, for whatever it is that we're moving away from. So he starts down this slope. So he, he, he establishes himself, and he's living in a tent right outside of the city, which is this, this, like loaded with parallel. Like he's right up next to the city, but he's not in the city, right? He's, he, I'm outside of the city. I live in a tent. You see, I've not put down permanent roots, but he's dwelling right next to the city. It's a compromise. And then the next time we see him, he's living in the city because he among, uh, is, is among a group of people who are in leadership in Sodom that get kidnapped by uh, an opposing king. And that's a story where Abraham takes 300 and I think 318 of his men and goes and rescues Lot. Men, it's a, that's a dude story. That's awesome. I, if I was going to make a hardcore band, I would call them the 318 Militia. I, I thought that would be cool. Um, and, uh, in reference to Abraham's militia, man, they go, and they, they go to war and they smoke these dudes and they get Lot and, his, and, and leaders from Sodom and they bring them back. But at that point, we realize Lot has moved into Sodom. So this is the way the progression looks. And I want you to be mindful of this as a Christian living in America in 2022. We begin to look towards what the world offers. We begin to move with compromise towards it. And if we're not careful, we'll find ourselves living in the world, receiving all that the world might give us as a benefit. The difference here in Abraham and Lot is that Abraham stayed outside of the city but desired to bring to the city what the city needed, namely salvation. So Abraham loved Sodom, but he loved Sodom for what he offered Sodom, namely salvation. Lot fell in love with Sodom, but he loved Sodom for what Sodom offered to him. And for the Christian, the parallel is we need to love the world, but the Bible gives us good, clear instruction on this. Like the, the scripture says, don't love the world or the things in the world, for the one who loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And what the Scripture is teaching us is we need to love the world, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, so whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life, John 3.16. But then when we read John 3.17 and 18, we find out that the world was under condemnation. So the love of God to the world was the offering of salvation. God loved the world enough to provide salvation. We need to love the world for what we offer the world not for what the world offers us. That's the tension for the believer because it can be confusing. You go, well, how do I live in the world? Because like, you could go, well, man, Lot, he just got, he was going down there trying to just love people and be a good neighbor and bring the truth of the gospel to them. No, that's different. Lot went there because he longed for what the world was offering him. And Christians who capitulate to social agendas or secular ideology typically are desiring what the world is offering. And usually at the root of what the world's offering us is something where we get to be in charge 
of our own destiny or our own self-autonomy. We get to set the rules. We don't have to follow anything uh, outside of what we desire. So we see this progression that lands Lot in Sodom. Now, in uh, in verses 2 and 3, a couple of things jump out at us. At the end of this compromise, this slope of compromise, Lot is sitting in the city. Okay, so he's sitting in the gate of the city in the evening. And here's what that means. That means he had not only moved into and assimilated into the culture of Sodom, he had attained status and authority. So he had progressed and done well. Now at this point, again, we would, we would need to draw some, some, some parallels, but some distinctions. Do we need godly men and women serving in the armed forces? Yes. In law enforcement? Yes. In politics? Yes. In the courts? Yes. We need that. But that's not what Lot was doing. Lot wasn't using his godly influence in the city. Lot had already given that up. Well, I was, I was uh, recently reminded of how important it is that we have godly men and women in positions of power and authority in our society. In fact, I was talking to a guy in our church um, back in North Carolina, a good friend of mine, and he's on the school board and man, he's a, he loves Jesus and he's doing everything he can to make a difference. And I just said, man, do you, why don't you run for mayor? And he's like, no, no, no. And he says, tell me why he's not about to run for, you know, small town, local politics. And I'm like, yeah, but we need godly men and women in those positions to impact society from those positions. But then we all have to do our part to make a difference in the society and the culture that we live in. We've all got a, a job to do. Uh, and in that conversation, I, I, was, I, was, I was talking about there's a, there's, a, there's a red barn in our town. It's just an old red barn. And our town is like post-industrial. It's very poor. There's a, there's a huge, y'all see this, but you see it less in larger places, like a huge drug epidemic. And uh, lots of people, like, like on a normal night, if you just drive through our town uh, at, between midnight and 3 in the morning, um, you'll see a dozen people at, at one point or another just walking, backpacks walking. They're like zombies. And they're in, the, they're in this slave, slavery to addiction. And there's this red barn, and my wife has a ministry that, that sort of goes into that dark world. And, and, and in fact, right now we have a young man, a little boy that's living with us, been with us six months that came out of that. Um, and we're fostering him uh, because his mom signed emergency kinship custody, even though we're not related, over to us because she's kind of caught up in that world. And this red barn is known to be the barn where um, you can get drugs or get a trick turned for just a few bucks, the cost of a a pill or a, a shot of heroin or whatever. And people know that. And I was having a conversation recently with some local leaders. I, I went down, we ended up in that barn. My wife ended up in that barn and she came out of it and she said, man, there's three girls in there right now that are strung out. There's needles laying on the, in the dirt beside them. They're laying on mats on the floor and they're being prostituted out of that, that barn. And we're talking about in a town of 1500 people. And, um, it's, it's, it's crazy. It's just crazy. Uh, y'all, y'all, y'all know that kind of thing's going on, right? Like in, in this community, um, and you could talk to you, you like you talk to the dukes or so, like people in your church that work in that world and they can they can tell you more than you want to know because the world has fallen and but so i end up the lord just orchestrated this i'm i'm right across from the red barn is this place called the burger basket if you ever come to andrews that's the best 
If you get a cheeseburger from the burger basket, get it on Texas toast. It'll change your Baptist life, I'm telling you. And I'm sitting there, and in rolls in the wheelchair our uh, U.S. representative, Madison Cawthorn, which I don't even know what he's doing in this little town. And he comes rolling in with our mayor. And so I, and the mayor's like, hey, Brody, Brody, come in. I want to tell, tell, I want to tell uh, Congressman Cawthorn all about Snowbird, and we're talking about the camp. And he's like, what can I do for you guys? And I said, I'll tell you what you can do. You see that red barn right there? There's prostitutes laying in there right now, strung out on meth with, with needle marks in their arms and toes and between their fingers from shooting up heroin. And the guy that does it, and I named him, and I said, that's his business right there. And I said, I just don't know what we need to do to get something done about it. And it was real awkward. <laughs> and so then I end up in a conversation. Over the next week, I have, I have one-on-one meetings with, I don't want to name positions or people because I know this is going to be, <laughs> like, I told my wife, I've kicked too many hornet's nests. If I turn up dead, it's not suicide or a heart attack. I want an autopsy. <laughs> like, I'm just telling you. I didn't, I didn't go, I, I just, and I've listened to too many of those true crime podcasts. Right? <laughs> so so you, you get a full autopsy. Like I want it done. And so, uh, so I end up over the next week meeting with, you know, commissioners and town board folks, the, the chief of police, who's a good friend of mine and a good dude, the sheriff, godly man. But like we're upside down as a society and we need godly people in positions of influence, but we need God's people to say, I'm going to live in the world, but not be of the world. Lot had capitulated. He had flipped. And so what Lot was doing, and that's, that's like a, that, even that illustration I just told like that's not even probably the biggest danger facing us because what we do is we hear a story like that and we go, well, there, but for the grace of God go I, but thankfully I'm not, that's not something that we're going to struggle with. But you know what we are going to struggle with? Our sons and daughters being sacrificed on the altars of tolerance. Our worldview being redefined by Satan through the mouths of those who lead and teach and profess in academia. Because there's a point in the story that we're going to get to in a minute where where Lot does the unthinkable with his daughters. And here's what we realize. The ethics of Sodom had reshaped Lot as a man, and he was now rejecting the ethics of Yahweh and embracing the ethics of the world. That's what we see. We've got to live as people without compromise in the world. Lot had not only grown comfortable living in Sodom, but he had gained status. He has a house, a permanent residence, it's the first time in the scripture that we see the word house mentioned. He's not in a tent anymore. He's in a house. Y'all know how much of y'all know what a big deal it is, is to build a house? It's awful. And you ain't never done. I've been living in the house I'm in for 10 years. And right now, while I'm down here for a week, I got the whole front of that thing ripped off. I dried it in and I got some buddies hired out for the next week to try to finish that before I get home. And you know what? I'm going to get home. We get that project finished. There's going to be something else to do, right? A house is a place of permanence. He's put down roots. He's living in a house. He had embraced the culture and was approving of it. And this is most obvious in the way he treats his daughters. His value system has been totally shaped by the value system of Sodom. I was thinking about this on the drive up today from where we're staying. Lot is thinking about the here and the now. 
we're so appalled by what Lot has done, but we are living in a society that is giving away the innocence of our sons and daughters to the tide of social and cultural comfort and acceptance, but it is only acceptance and comfort in the here and the now. It's providing nothing for the future. The gospel has the answer for the future. I read about a, a, a well-known play recently where the main character, and this play is being celebrated, the main character left his wife to have a sexual and illicit relationship with a goat. And it was initially in the, you know, like in the, in, under, under the, the flag of creativity and artistic um, creativity, but, but it's being celebrated, but then it's also being condemned even by people who are not Christian. But the thing is, what is celebrated now is the very thing that would have appalled us in the same way that we hear that story about that play a man leaving his wife for a goat, as appalling as that sounds, as a society, we now celebrate a man leaving his wife for a man. He's courageous. He's, it, it should be celebrated. Because what compromise does is it, is it slowly erodes any sort of a structure of conviction and morality. Only the word of God and the plan of God is timeless. It's for today and for the next day and for the future. And no worldview or social agenda does that. Right now, we're living in a society where people are only thinking of the moment. It's important to understand here the cultural state, the emotional state, and the overall atmosphere in Sodom as a city. And before we move on, let's say this. Consider Psalm 1 that says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly or the wicked or stands in the way of sinners or sits in the seat of the scornful. For his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. And he's like a tree planted by streams of water that brings forth its fruit in its season. But he says the wicked are not so. Lot is the opposite of the Psalm 1, 1 through 3 man. Lot is walking in the counsel of the wicked, standing in the way of the sinners, sitting in the seat of the mockers. He has yielded to the tide of social pressure. And for what reason? For the few amenities and conveniences it offered him. We consider the contrast between Lot and Abraham. Abraham was burdened for the people of Sodom and prayed that God might deliver them through salvation. But he dwelled in a tent and understood that this world was not his home. I think as we pick up, we'll begin to see some definition to what the sin of Sodom is. But before, uh, but before they lay down, verse 4, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house. Okay, so... To the last man, young and old. So we see here when Abraham prayed, God, if there's somebody righteous in that city, would you spare the city? And God's like, there's nobody. And we see there, everyone is here involved in this thing. This is, this is the way it works. As the, as the tide builds, everyone just kind of gets caught up in it until all of a sudden everyone's screaming the same thing. And they called a lot, where are the men who came to you? Uh, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. Lot went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door after him, and said, I beg you, my brothers, don't act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. But they said, stand back. And they said, this fellow came to sojourn, and he has become the judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. Then they pressed hard against the man Lot and drew near to break the door down. At this point, we see they don't take Lot serious. All that work that he's done to establish status in the world, and in one statement, they say, well, who are you? We don't even take you serious. We're like, 
Isn't that fascinating? There's this fight to be accepted by the world. But as a believer, there's going to be a point where the world will no longer accept you. Like it's, that's the way it works. And so he comes to this place where they won't take him serious. Verse 10, the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door and they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so they wore themselves out groping for the door. It's like, like a feeding frenzy. These guys are like doing everything they can to drag these men out. Let me, let me talk for just a second about the sin of Sodom. Certainly homosexuality is rampant and it's become a cultural norm there. And I don't want to make, uh, we, don't need to, we don't need to belabor that. Like, um, that's not the main point of the story. That's not the main point of the story. Um, and we know what the scripture teaches about uh, like biblical sexuality. But there was, I, I, I say that we don't have to labor that because there was a lot more going on. That's sort of what yells back at us from the text. But listen to what Jeremiah 23 says. Jeremiah 23, 14, the prophets of Judah are accused of behaving like the people of Sodom. They commit adultery, lie, and promote evil doing. So adultery, dishonesty, and evil doing. Um, Ezekiel 16, 49 says, Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and needy. So they're creating a hierarchical uh, structure, societal structure, where they're oppressing the poor and the needy. They're, they're showing favoritism to people. There's no doubt slavery involved. And these passages reflect Paul's writings in Romans 1 where he talks about that downward progression. And if you go read through Romans 1, it's like every step of the way, there's this downward progression that sin takes a person or a culture or a city or a society on. Jim Boyce calls this a spectrum of iniquity. Boyce says, sexual sins are not only part of the larger pattern of corruption in the pagan world. Sodom was not destroyed because it specialized in homosexuality, but, it, but because it was a plague center of every kind of depravity, including pride, sensuality, and injustice. The Old Testament reader would recognize homo, homosexual practice as one aspect of this depravity. So in Sodom, what we've got is an overwhelming depravity that has taken over every aspect of the city. And I would just say this, both biblically and a brief study in history shows us this, that when a society goes to a place of complete freedom and depravity in terms of their sexual ethic, homosexuality, gender neutrality, these are, the, these are always the end results. I mean, you guys know that Nero castrated a young boy and then married him as a transgender. Y'all know that. Like, like the Roman, if you don't, you probably at least know that, that Roman culture ultimately disintegrated from within, Right? We look at, look at a society, and you could walk back through the previous global cultures, and the same thing happened to all of them. Rome, go back to Greece, uh, go back before that to the Medo-Persian Empire, go back to that to the Babylonian Empire. We could bring it forward. We could look at the Byzantine Empire, the Ottoman Empire. We could look at what's happened in much of the uh, Islamic world where these types of sexual ethics go against what God has designed. When a society or a culture or a nation deconstructs the, the biblical ethic for sexuality in God's plan, that, that is a fast and slippery slope to self-destruction, even if there's not an immediate hand of destruction that comes from God. That's where we're at as a people. That's where we're living. So I want to I give you, because what happens, well, let's read a couple more verses and we'll be done with the text. Then the man said to Lot, have you anyone else here? Sons-in-law, sons, daughters, or anyone you have in the city, bring them out to this place. For we're about to destroy this place because the outcry has become great before the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and said to his sons-in-law, who were to marry his daughters, which, I mean, it's just like, 
So he's got these sons-in-law who are there with him, and then he's going to give his daughters to these men the night before. It, it, like it's, it's beyond anything you can wrap your, your mind around. Up, get out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But he seemed to be, to his sons-in-law, to be jesting. As morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and your daughters who are there, who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he lingered. He can't get away. He's, he's so hypnotized by what Sodom is offering him, even in the face of judgment and warning from these angels who have come from the presence of Yahweh are saying, you got to go. I mean, the fact that they had to wake him up in the morning, they told him the night before, you got to get out of the city. And then he, he falls asleep somewhere in the wee hours of the morning, he falls asleep and they're shaking him awake saying, I, you got to go. We're going to destroy this city. We've been sent here to get you and your family out. What are you doing? His sons-in-law don't take him serious. The city doesn't take him serious. He's lingering there. He's torn. He's in this divided mind. So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand. The Lord being, here's a key phrase, merciful to him. God's showing mercy to Lot. If you want to talk about like in the midst of the destruction of Sodom, and, and when a non-believer reads that, a skeptic or an agnostic or an atheist reads that, and they go, where's the love of God in this situation? It's in the mercy being extended to Lot. This is like Rahab being rescued. The, the, go back in your mind to the story where the spies go into Jericho. Do you think God needed a tactical report on Jericho? He sent the marching band. He didn't send the 75th Ranger Regiment, right? He didn't send 5th Special Forces Group or SEAL Team 6 or Delta or CAG. Like, he didn't send B-52s in. What, he collapsed the wall and killed the people and made it easy. Why would he have sent spies? Because there was one woman in that city that God had a plan for. God is always preserving a remnant out of the depravity of culture and societies that are broken. Rahab, I, I did a series. Uh, I did a series on my podcast called "Jesus's Crazy Grandmas." You know, like Rahab, Jericho prostitute, Ruth, descendant of Lot's incestuous relationships with his daughter. Like you got these women, the the woman who uh, Tamar, the woman who prostituted herself to 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 her uh, father-in-law. Like Jesus is redeeming people out of the broken. Where's the mercy of God at Sodom? It's seen in the preservation of Lot's family. God's always extending mercy. He's always saving a remnant. Here in closing, let me give you some observations concerning the justice and the concerning justice and the wrath of God. First, the Lord always judges justly, and Ezekiel tells us in Ezekiel eighteen twenty three that He doesn't take pleasure in the death of the wicked. God's not like I'm saving Sodom, saving this one. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm, it's gonna be like Fourth of July at Sodom. We're gonna blow that place up. You just wait. He's not like up there telling the angelic realm, okay, guys. I know the flood was impressive, but watch this. Now we're going to laser-guided precision destruction of one culture and society. It's going to be awesome. No, Ezekiel tells us, no, God doesn't take pleasure in it. But Peter writes, God's not willing that any should perish. But, that all, but the problem is people do perish in their own sin and the hardening of their hearts against the warnings of Scripture. God's not willing that daddies would leave their families, abandon them, and, and kids would be raised without a godly man in the house. But it happens. There's a lot of things God's not willing to happen, but we live in a broken and fallen world where 
there is an aspect of redemption that is already available to us, but there is a future and coming kingdom where none of that will be a reality. We set free from it. The Lord is patient. He's kind. And the wrath of God is poured out. There's, there's four ways that you can think of the wrath of God being poured out that we see in Scripture. The first one is what we see at Sodom. Because at the end of the story, we're not going to get to it, he destroys that city. Literally rains fire from the sky and destroys that city. So sometimes the wrath of God is poured out in judgment immediately. But we do, we do know this, whether it happens immediately or over a period of time or in the end, God always judges justly. Will not the righteous judge of all the earth ultimately bring everything under his justice? He will. He will. So the first way that we see the judgment and justice of God poured out in his wrath is in what happens at Sodom or at the flood. But the second way we see it in Scripture would be like a slow progression. This is what we see in Romans 1 where God hands people over to their actions. He, take, he sort of takes moral conscience, conscience out of the equation and just gives people over to their sin. and says, all right, have at it. Have at it. And when God removes any sort of conscientious or conscience in restraint, when he removes that, there's no end that people won't go to. That's, that's a form of God's judgment, giving people over to their own demands and desires. The third way is the immediate and swift outpouring of judgment and destruction that will come in the end at the cross. I mean, uh, at the uh, return of Christ, the eschatological what we would call the eschatological judgment of God. So in the end, the scripture teaches God's going to bring judgment on the earth. He's going to destroy the earth and he's going to create something that is beautiful and perfect and without sin and we will rule and reign with Christ forever. That's called the kingdom that Jesus is building. The gospel of the kingdom is what Jesus preached. That one day, he's going to do away. There's a coming a day where every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. He'll bring under, under destruction all that is awaiting his judgment and then he'll usher in a new kingdom that's the third way the fourth way is this is where we'll land the wrath of god is poured out on jesus at the cross sodom and gomorrah for us as new testament believers under the new covenant the covenant of god's grace through what christ has done sodom and gomorrah is a picture and a story that should point us to the cross of christ because as they come under the wrath of God, you and I don't have to come under the wrath of God because of what Jesus has done. In a few minutes, we're going to take the Lord's Supper. We're going to take communion. We're going to take the, the, the symbolic body and blood of Christ, and we're going to receive that to be reminded of what he's done for us. And the wrath of God being poured out on Christ is precisely why we do not have to suffer judgment. The Bible says in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why are we not like Sodom? Why do we not, why do, why do we not have that future fate? Because of what Christ has done, amen? Because at the cross, what was happening was, think of the night before the crucifixion of Jesus that we're going to celebrate in a week, the resurrection of Christ. And here on this Palm Sunday as we set aside this week to reflect we're gonna i've got a seven day sort of like a christmas advent guide a seven day reading i'm going to take my family through over the next seven days that i'm really excited about where we focus on the resurrection of jesus and the night before his death jesus praying to the father and says if it's possible let this cup pass from me what cup is that the cup of the wrath of god that's going to be poured out on him the wrath of god is what all of us are under 
Paul says it in Romans 1. He says, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness and all, unwicked, and all wickedness. The wrath of God is being revealed. But in Christ, for those of us that are in Christ, what Jesus does is he stands in our place, bears the wrath of God. So that, listen, at the cross, Jesus is, is having the wrath of God poured out on him so that you and I don't have to. So that we don't have to suffer the fate of Sodom. So that we don't have to suffer the fate that so many have suffered through history who have rejected the gospel. Jesus would even later say in Matthew 11, if you think it's bad for what happened to Sodom, that's nothing compared to what happens to those who reject the finished work of Jesus at the cross. To those who reject the gospel. Paul writes to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 5 and says, For our sake God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us so that in him we would become the righteousness of God. Jesus gives us his righteousness, takes our sin, and then dies with it, puts it to death, buries it, and comes out of the grave empty-handed, leaving it behind. That's the message of the gospel. At the cross, wrath is poured out in so much more of an intensity than what we saw at Sodom. Jesus alone could bear the wrath of God and then in turn come out of the grave and extend to us freedom from sin. That's the gospel. And we see a glimpse of it in the mercy that's shown to Lot in Sodom. I'll give you this thought in conclusion, because I've wrestled with this, and there's somebody here right now that's wrestling with this. 2 Peter 2, verse 6. If turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued righteous Lot, how could Lot be called righteous? Because the righteousness was imputed to him by God. It was not a righteousness that was his own. God had a plan for him and a purpose that if Lot followed it, would not have involved life in Sodom. He was disobedient. And here's what the result was. Greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, that righteous man lived among them day after day and was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds. Because you see, compromise and capitulation always leads to torment. For the believer, it never leads to peace. We can try to live at peace with the world by, by yielding and bowing to the demands and structures of the world, but we'll never live at peace because God, God has called us to something greater and higher. He's called us to conformity to his image, the image of Jesus, and obedience to his word. Lot learned what it was like to live in torment over his compromise. So the, the final challenge for the believer today is to look to the cross and in the midst of a dark and oppressive world, be reminded that Christ has borne the wrath of God, not so that our sin might be excused. It can't be excused. A righteous God, a righteous judge can't excuse sin, but that our sin might be punished. And Jesus took that punishment. But for the unbeliever, the person that's wrestling with it, who is God? Where's Christ fit into this? What? Here's, here's what the word of God would say to us. Repent, Jesus, in Matthew 11, lest you likewise perish. Repent and receive mercy so that you don't pay for your own sin, but that Jesus pays for it and you receive salvation and forgiveness. That's what this week's about anyway. What Christ has done in doing what we could never do. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, I